Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. Sometimes when you read the Bible, don't you ever read it, you're rereading it probably, and you come across different verses, passages, and you just think, I don't remember that being there. That's kind of surprising. I think sometimes that happens in the bizarre fashion, particularly when you read the Old Testament. I don't know if any of you all have cracked the Old Testament open recently. I just got done reading through Leviticus, and there's just some verses in there I was just wow, I did not remember that was in the Bible. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, I encourage you to crack open Leviticus and read through it sometime soon. So sometimes it's in that bizarre sense, wow, I don't remember that, but also, there's also a a good sense. Wow, that's pretty cool. I don't remember seeing that verse before. And to me personally, that verse in this passage comes in verse 15. Read through the Gospels a few times, but verse 15, I completely forgot about it. But Jesus says to his apostles, to the twelve, sitting around the table, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Do any of y'all remember that verse, just out of curiosity? That Jesus eagerly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. See, we're familiar, you might be familiar with communion and, of course, the all-famous line that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. And he breaks the bread, passes around the wine, right? We remember that. But how many of us us remember that phrase that Jesus was eagerly desiring to eat the Passover with his followers? In the original Greek there, it's the same root word used in both words, eagerly and desire. So it's as if Jesus is saying back to back, I have desired, desired to eat this Passover meal with you. Or in modern-day vernacular, think if somebody says, I love ice cream, versus I love, love ice cream. It just communicates something a little bit more. And that's certainly what the case is going on here in Luke chapter 22. But you have to ask the question, why is that the case? Why is Jesus eagerly looking forward to this meal? I don't think it was to literally chow down on the bread and the juice. I don't think that's what he was eagerly looking forward to, just having a meal physically like that. 
But also, I don't think, just kind of you know, reasoning through the text, I don't think it's because Jesus was eagerly looking forward to the company he was going to be sharing. What do I mean by that? Well, when I, one of the kind of typical questions you might ask somebody when you're trying to get to know them is, or you might see in one of those booklets about, I, for example, at home I have a book, I think it's called A Thousand One Questions to Ask to Get to Know Somebody. Right, just a bunch of random all over the place. But one of them is, if you could have a meal with somebody famous, either present day they're living or in history, who would it be? And then, of course, why? Now, when you think about that person, whoever it might be, now, of course, if you're a good Christian, you obviously would say Jesus, right? But besides Jesus or any biblical character, who would it be? Okay. Whoever it might be, when you think about that person, it's not so that you can sit there and you can talk and yap the whole time. You look forward to that meal, potentially, because you want to hear what they have to say about music, about the world, about politics, about a certain hobby. Well, the Lord's still living. He... <laughs> Um, about anything, okay? So you want to hear what they have to say, all right? So when it comes to Jesus then, he's eagerly looking forward to this meal, but what are the disciples talking about? Well, did you notice in verse 24, we didn't read it today, but verse 24, what are the disciples yapping about around the table? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. So I don't think Jesus was actively looking forward to the disciples yapping about who's the greatest and who's the best, who's the most important. This, this arrogance and pride coming out of them. So what is Jesus looking forward to? I think it's this. As one scholar said, Jesus is excited to eat this Passover meal because, quote, it was for him the moment above all when he would explain to his followers in deeds and words rich and heavy with meaning what he was about to do, and how they could profit from it. Another pastor puts it like this. Jesus was eager to teach them from this meal the most important truths ever revealed. The meal would be transformed forever, the Passover meal that is. Its celebration would become an acted parable of Jesus' own life and death. Did you catch all of that? Jesus is wanting to instruct, to build up, to encourage his disciples with the gospel message. With his body being broken, with his blood being poured out, tangibly giving them a sign to remember and to learn these things by. But before we get to that all-famous phrase, verse 19 and following, this is my body, this is my blood, you'll notice the context. Or in other words, we have to situate ourselves in the context. Because before we get to that phrase, the word Passover, or the word the festival of unleavened bread, as it's called, that phrase, that word, is mentioned nine different times in the verses that we read this morning. So, in other words, if you want to understand communion, if you want to understand the Lord's Supper, if you want to wrap your head around it, but more so, wrap your heart around it, what does it mean? What, what's the significance of it? Why do we do it? What's the benefit of it? Why did Jesus institute it? If you want to begin to wrap your head around it, you must understand the context of the Passover. You must understand the context of the Old Testament. So, if you will, turn with me. Do some time traveling to the book of Exodus. Exodus. 
We're going to camp out here for a little while. Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. What's going on? What's going on in the text? Well, keep in mind, God's people, known as the Israelites, they are trapped in Egypt. They're bound in slavery. Many of you may have seen, I think it's a good movie, uh, The Prince of Egypt. It's a nice musical from, I think it's DreamWorks animation that made it. It's not perfect, but it's a decent a depiction of what, what happens. God's people, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're under harsh brutality of Pharaoh lording over them, forcing them to make bricks under the hot sun, and, and really just pushing them a lot harder than any human being needs to be pushed. Now, the Lord, in chapter 3, he appears to Moses through the burning bush. Some of you all might be recalling some of these stories. God appears to Moses through the burning bush, famously tells Moses, Hey Moses, I want you to go before Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Okay? Many of you might know that. So, Moses wrestles through that. I'm, do, I'm doing some big summaries here. Pharaoh refuses. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. Hey Pharaoh, let my people go. The Lord God Almighty says this. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not giving away my free labor. These people work hard for me. They're mine. They're my property. You can get out of here. So, what does God do? He sends different plagues, different massive signs to confound, to topple the Egyptian rulers. Nine different plagues were sent prior. So we got just including frogs popping out of everywhere, the river turning to blood, uh, hailstorms and pitch black darkness. And then Pharaoh still refuses to submit to God. But then the Lord announces the very last plague, the tenth plague, the one that would cut to the very heart of Pharaoh, which would be the death of the firstborn son amongst the Egyptians. This is what God announces in Exodus chapter 11. But then in chapter 12, the Lord gives specific instructions to the Israelites for them to follow. In Exodus 12, they're to take a whole lamb without defect. They're to slaughter the lamb at twilight, take some of the blood, and then put it on the doorpost and the doorframe to cover over their door, in a sense. Then Exodus 12, verse 8, tells us more instructions that they are to follow that very evening. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Then go to verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this is the very first reference in the Bible to the word Passover, right there in verse 11. But then look at verse 14 to 20. Because these are instructions that still serve the Jewish people, of course, in the first century, but even today. Verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate, 
For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on, on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. This is all that you may do. And then verse 17. Notice again, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. When you read the Bible, look for repeated phrases. Did anybody notice any repeated phrase or word in that passage we just read? Let me, let me hear you. What, what did you notice? Say, say it again. I heard some. Celebrate? Yes, bingo. That's what I'm looking for. Celebrate. Okay? Celebrate. Commemorate. Remember it. Rejoice. It's supposed to be a joyous occasion. All right? Keep this in mind. Verses 18 to 20, well, we saw it gave us instructions. Not, verse 20, eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Now, some of you all might already know this, but some of you might not. What's the big deal about unleavened bread in the Bible and right here in Exodus 12? Or eating bread without yeast. Now, if, if you don't bake bread actively in today's culture, sometimes the, the verbiage in Scripture can get lost to us because when it talks about growing crops and whatnot, all we do is just walk into Walmart and buy a tomato or something. Or we're blessed with Mr. Ray Sr., who's done all the hard work for us, and we can just have the tomato ourselves. All right, same thing with bread. If you don't bake bread, all you do is walk into Walmart, you get the loaf of bread, you just don't get what's going on. But those of you who know, bread, typically, for it to rise, you need the yeast in it. You need to put the yeast, you need to activate it, and whatnot, and it needs to set. Okay, it needs time to set. Now, here in Scripture, in Exodus 12, because God delivered the Israelites, because he showed mercy to them, and because Pharaoh would come right around and say, get out of here. This is the last straw. You, Moses and Aaron, you take your people, go with God's people, get out of here, and get out of here fast. Because of all of that, Israelites had to get out of there fast. They couldn't just mosey along and just say, you know, let's just have a nice, let let me put on a nice roast so we can enjoy one last meal in Egypt. No. Based on the, the, the text here, particularly that one verse, uh, at verse 11, you look at that, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. All of that language, the, the, the cloak tucked into your belt, of course having your shoes on, and of course having your staff in your hand, you need to hightail it out of there fast when it's time to go. Because my deliverance is right around the corner. And that is where unleavened bread comes into the picture. You don't have time to let the bread rise. So therefore, make it unleavened, no yeast at all, so that you can take it with you and have something to eat while you're traveling. So, what's the deal with unleavened bread? It's a tangible, physical sign that would vividly remind them about God's deliverance and provision. Okay? So let's continue on a little bit. 
verses 24 to 26. And perhaps this is the biggest question you might be wondering. Why celebrate? Why do this? Why do this in the first place? Verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe the ceremony. This is key right here. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. What were they celebrating? Remember, there's a lot of language. Celebrate, commemorate, remember, rejoice. What are they celebrating? It's kind of two components. Being saved from slavery. Being saved and delivered from God's wrath. But also being saved into the promised land. Being saved into freedom. Into deliverance. And this is certainly what you and I as Christians today celebrate. Being saved from God's wrath and slavery to sin, but also being saved into blessing and freedom in the Lord. So, Passover. What is it all about? It's about actively remembering what the Lord had done for his people. What is Passover all about? It's about God's people actively remembering how God had delivered them how God had provided for them. But please know, when the Bible talks about remembering, it's one of the most frequent commands in Scripture is remember. When you see that in Scripture, it's not about reciting information to yourself. It's about reorienting your life around God's mercy. For example, as one pastor notes, in the Bible, a call to remember, especially when tied to a covenant sign or ceremony is a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept where we recalibrate our lives according to what's important. So think about a typical example, a wedding anniversary. When you remember that day, or at least when I remember that day, which is for me October 5th, I did get that right. I made sure to make a little note of that so I didn't forget it up here. When you remember your wedding anniversary, it is not about remembering dry facts. You know that. It is about recalibrating, reorienting your day, maybe the whole weekend or week, whatever it be, but reorienting your day around that momentous occasion, the vows that you made years prior. And what does that mean practically? That means buy flowers and chocolate, okay? So... That makes sense, right? That's what it means to remember the anniversary. Now, when it comes with God, when it comes to remembering God's deliverance, remembering the Passover, celebrating, commemorating, commemorating it, all these different things, it's about reorienting your life around God's deliverance, recalibrating your life around God's mercy. And Passover is a wonderful time, which for us today in our modern calendar falls right around Easter time, which... That's intentional because of what Jesus does and unpacks a communion and infuses the Passover with more meaning and stuff. But it's, Passover is a time for us to reorient our lives together around the deliverance, grace, and mercy of the Lord. 
That's what Passover is all about. So turn with me, if you will, back to Luke 22. Let me try to wrap all of this up, tie it all together. If you were to try to explain to somebody who doesn't know the Bible very well, if you were to try to explain to them what is the Bible, what's the message of it, what's the point of it, it's very complicating. It can be. It's very daunting. It's a massive book. If you zoom out, you look at the entirety of the Bible, you could summarize the main point as a question. And you could pose the question like this. How does a holy God have relationship with sinful man? How does a holy God, a perfect, good, beautiful God, have a relationship with broken, wicked, sinful, messed up people? How do the two interact with one another? Well, in the Old Testament, we see this holy God taking the initiative, interacting with his people through the elaborate sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. I mentioned it earlier, but read through the book of Leviticus, and I'm not, that gets a bad rap, but read through it to understand the specificity and how much details were involved with keeping the sacrifices. But Romans chapter 3, and also the book of Hebrews, tells us that all of these animal sacrifices, which the Passover lamb and whatnot, that's a tiny component. It's a big component, but tiny as well. There's tons more laws concerning this matter. All of those different laws, all of those sacrifices of goats and lambs and pigeons and all this kind of stuff, it was temporary. As Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It merely covers over them, and only then it's temporary. Fast forward a bit. Consider the context of Christ in the New Testament. How does a holy God have relationship with sinful man? 1 Corinthians 5-7 is the answer. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the Passover lamb whom the Old Testament merely foreshadowed and pointed to and alluded to. And I hope you see that as Jesus is eagerly looking forward to eating the Passover with his followers, I hope you have a little bit more context as to what's going on. Because Jesus, of course, he's, you have to keep in mind, Jesus was a Jew. Okay? Jesus was not a Christian, just to correct some faulty thinking. Jesus was a Jew. He loved the Lord, served the Lord faithfully. He knew the Jewish scriptures, which were the Old Testament for what you and I hold today. And Jesus was a faithful Jew. He upheld that custom of Passover, but more so. Jesus wanted to communicate the gospel message to his followers. He wanted to teach them, to show them tangibly that this bread represented his body and this wine represented his blood, which would soon be poured out for them the very next day. Jesus is communicating the gospel to them for their good to build them up. And next week, just to give you a little foretaste, next week we're going to unpack what the benefit of communion is. What, what's the relevance for us today? But today, and this is, this is my closing, 
dear Christian, and even if you're not a Christian, if you want to understand communion, one of the centerpieces of Christianity, one of the two ordinances that sets Christians apart from other religions, the other one being baptism, if you want to understand that, you have to understand the Old Testament. Specifically, you have to understand the Passover. Because Jesus didn't just have a random meal. He didn't just randomly sit down with his disciples. This was rooted in God's deliverance in the past. God's mercy, God's provision, God's goodness in the past. But he's also connecting it with what he's about to do right around the corner. You see, for you and I, when we celebrate communion, it's kind of the same thing. We likewise look back. We look back at what Jesus did what does 1 Corinthians 11 talks about? We also look ahead to what he's about to do, what he's going to do when we have that glorious meal around the heavenly table in heaven. Because that is what we're aiming for. Unity, fellowship, communion, true communion with God and with God's people. That's just a little foretaste of what all of this is about. But I want to close by reading Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 25. Because here, we don't know who wrote this book in terms of the human author. The Holy Spirit inspired this, of course. Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 25, which I'll read and close with. This is a, a very beautiful passage that contrasts the blessings of the new covenant against the backdrop of the old covenant. Let me just say it again. If you want to understand communion, you must understand the Old Testament. I've heard some people say, uh, you know, I'm a New Testament Christian. I think it'd be more accurate to say I'm a New Covenant Christian because the Old Testament is still very, very relevant for us. But Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 25. Then we'll close in prayer and the doxology. This ties everything together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, 
and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we ask that your kingdom come. Jesus, may we delight in your love. And Holy Spirit, may we stand upon the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.